Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hey listeners, before we get into this week's episode, we wanted to put up some content and trigger warnings. Because we are talking about Pulp Fiction, we inevitably discuss the quote-unquote gimp scene and the sexual assault that follows. If you want to skip past this part, we'll put the timestamps in the show notes so you know where to skip. And as always, thanks for listening, but if you do need to sit this one out, we completely understand. Thanks. And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is director, editor, and cinematographer Devereaux Milburn. His trippy, fun, gross, and all-out hellscape feature film debut, Honeydew, is out now on streaming platforms. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Happy to be here. We're Yay. really excited to talk with you, but um, I think first, before we do ask questions, Mary Beth has a specific question. What is the deal with your photo on IMDb? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every, so... time I, every time I clicked on it, I was like, am I in the right place? <laughs> <laughs> I've, had, I've had two other people mention that on a couple different outlets. And uh, yeah, so I, I don't have any professional photos of myself. And I was hoping that 2020 would would bring more uh, step and repeats that I could sort of plug in the IMDb IMDb profile photo, but uh, but it didn't, and <laughs> uh, and I, I didn't have anyone take my picture at all, other than probably my wife and my mom and and maybe a couple friends. Uh, so I just I can't remember what I had there before, but it was also odd. So I just swapped out whatever I had there with like an old. Um, elementary school <laughs> picture day photo. I love it because I've, I've always wondered if if you have like control over the pictures that go up there because like I think about this recently where I went to go look at Alexander Skarsgård's picture and he's like in a tux 
and brief at briefs and that's about it and so i'm always <laughs> curious like how those photos end up up there <laughs> yeah yeah they, they well they i guess they have to approve everything and they for whatever reason they were they were okay with that but uh <laughs> but yeah i i haven't gone through the um professional photo gamut yet so i like it a lot i had to ask about it it made me laugh it made me laugh. So. <laughs> it's a topic of conversation at the very least. There you go. Good icebreaker. Good icebreaker. Right? Exactly. Damn it, James Terry, ew. Yep. <laughs> so let's bring it back to that to that young Devereaux. Uh, how did you get yeah. introduced to horror? Oh, man. So, yeah, I've been thinking a bit more about um, the sort of genesis of my, my horror life. Um, and as a very young kid, I sort of had to sneak sneak peeks at horror films and rated R and PG-13 films up until I was probably 11 or 12. You know, it'd be like sleepovers at friends' houses and mm. or maybe the the odd unrated film that my parents weren't really privy to the whatever the parental advisories were at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I first remember looking at the back covers of The Shining and The Exorcist oh, yeah. and, and whatever my my mom or dad had lying around uh, in the basement and just, and the silence of the lambs was a big one. And I just remember being sort of captivated by whatever stills they had on the back and, and just wondering what was happening before or after that still. Yeah. And just really becoming sort of obsessed with the sort of the phantom image, I guess. Yeah. And that sort of carried on until I was, Probably like seven or eight or nine, I was able to gradually sneak into movie theaters or, or my friends, you know, broadened my, broadened <laughs> my mind with what else, what else was out there, which was obviously a lot. But yeah, the actual, I feel like the first horror film I ever saw or the first one that had a, an impact was that I watched over and over again was Haunted, which I don't know how well known it is. It's a Lewis Gilbert film. He did uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane, mm. and it's with Aiden Quinn and Kate Beckinsale, like very, very early Kate Beckinsale, and it just terrified me. It's about essentially about a a, fam- a guy who goes to this huge mansion, English countryside, to I think to ultimately disprove a case of ghosts, and he winds up being disproved himself. I have seen this cover before. I've never seen this movie, but I that cover, yeah. I just went to go look it up, and I remember seeing that cover in uh, rental stores and everything. Yeah. Is it, it haunted? Was like a, it's called Haunted, haunted yes. Yeah, so okay. it's very easy to, yeah, from 95, it's very easy to mix up with like the haunting, and, yeah. um, <laughs> the haunting of Hill House, or like there's so many movies with haunted in the title but that's the first one i sort of remember being obsessed with and then from there Mm. it was the shining and the exorcist like i mentioned before and audrey rose uh the robert uh, Robert wise film was also a big one and that's when my dad introduced me to when i was probably like 10 or 11 and yeah i just i always from a young age like i like i said before i was even able to sort of watch full films i was intrigued by by violence and problem and violence and horror and anything sort of in or around that genre and in subgenres. And I think partly it was because I wasn't, you know, I w- a lot of my friends were allowed to watch those films at mm-hmm. a younger age and I wasn't. So I sort of, I sort of developed a fascination with it. I mean, you, you mentioned kind of initially being maybe attracted to the, to the violence or the gore and that kind of stuff. Did you ever get, did you get scared watching horror movies as a kid? I definitely, yeah, I did. I mean, Haunted mm-hmm. and like the omen and the haunting. The haunting yeah. is also a big one. Those terrified me. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, when you're 
kid, a lot of the stuff that terrified me about them wasn't necessarily the violence itself. It was the tension before the violence and the sort of knowing that it was coming and just sort of being enveloped by this world, you know, this group of people created. Oftentimes it was, you know, you start out in a very normal, a normal world and a normal family and a normal town. And uh, it was a lot of it for me was the implications of what was to come. And then, you know, I always go back to The Shining when I talk about that sort of just that, I mean, even the, the with the opening credits and that chopper shot of the car winding around the mountain. Mm, mm-hmm. The dread from that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that classic score was just I just had this this sort of belly reaction to it. Uh, and that's what always I always wanted to be able to emulate before the before the really sort of blood spatter gore and mm-hmm. and uh, and jump scares came into effect with me. Yeah. Yeah. So so, yeah, it was it was definitely it terrified me without a doubt. I mean, it, it, I think the earliest film that terrified me is probably like Wizard of Oz when I was four or yeah. five. Um, <laughs> but that's obviously far from outside the genre. But you know, that movie scared a lot of a lot of kids. It, yeah, it's yeah, that, yeah, it's, it's sure. that sort of like surrealness that I think, especially if you're watching it at a certain age, it's just like really it really works as, as far as like fear goes, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 no, it does definitely. It definitely tugs at those strings. The sort of the the Wicked Witch of the West, the Flying Monkeys, the yeah. <laughs> the, the whole the whole sort of intro of those characters is. I still have the image, and I haven't seen Wizard of Oz in forever, but I still have the image of of the the legs sort of retreating under the house after it's like sure, falling on the yeah. witch. Like that is an indelible image that is stuck in my brain since I saw it as a kid. Yeah, the stripes, the striped stockings, mm-hmm. just sort of rolling up. Exactly. Yeah, this, those were the things for me that like i just you know it's the details the to use a a a snotty word the mise-en-scene and the (laughs) the the production design and those are the things when you're a kid that you remember you remember what they're wearing like a a really thick wool sweater yeah or red shoes or they have some sort of odd haircut those were the things for me that like really made me feel unsafe it didn't make me Mm. sort of grip my chair and and run out of the room but it made me feel a type of way yeah and yeah and i I mean i remember seeing independence day i can't remember if 84 came out when i was like i must have been probably 11 or 12 i remember it was like 97 98 yeah uh, 96 actually 96 yeah so yeah i think i was 11 or 12 when they're dissecting the alien or oh yeah or whatever the actor's name who plays data on star trek is uh, is sort of the <laughs> mad scientist behind the whole uh, uh area 51 he winds in the, the alien suddenly comes to life they think he's dead and um uses you uses the actor as his mouthpiece to sort of oh, yeah. through the, the bulletproof glass and uh and yeah it uh i remember that's the first like jump scare I remember really having an effect. I'm sure there were more, there were others before that, but, but yeah, the biggest thing for me even now is, is the implication of terror. Changeling was one I saw a bit earlier on. Oh, the changeling is so good. Yeah. And that was like, that was just absolutely terrifying. I mean, anything, the bathtub, (laughs) the bathtub scene and seeing, yeah. And seeing the the face underwater, anything that involved a large house. I just Mm. felt, I just always felt, so uh so unsafe and exposed uh, for the whoever the protagonist was and uh in the feeling of possibility like if the the more rooms there are and the more space there is the more places the walls there are to hide behind mm, yeah yeah so do you still get uh scared as an adult watching horror films yeah 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah typically either, I mean, in the theater is it's, it has obviously more of an, uh, an effect, uh, sonically, but if I'm, watching a horror film at home alone in the dark i might as well be eight years old i love uh, that yeah yeah no it's still i mean that's why i you know that's the the main reason i watch new horror films um and it's it's definitely still I, i'm still even if i know the the man or woman behind there's a man or woman behind the curtain yeah there it doesn't it doesn't sort of alleviate that that sense of demon dread do you remember the last the last movie that that scared you that you've seen recently? Ooh, that is a good and tough question. <laughs> Not to just top, put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, 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 no. Um, the last movie that scared me recently. Oh, I see. I was just watching something. I feel bad because I was watching it on my iPad under my covers. I watch a movie every night <laughs> before I go to covers? bed. Under the covers. Under the covers. So I watch. <laughs> I, I watch. I watch because my wife falls asleep. I usually fall asleep around two a.m. Very good. And uh, so I sort of have my own little home theater under the covers. Oh. And, uh, I know it sounds silly saying it out loud. No, I love it. It's, no, it's, it's amazing. I love it. <laughs> I don't know that it was a film. I want to say it was the what was the Ben Mendelsohn show on HBO? Uh, I think it was HBO. Oh, The Outsider. The Outsider. Yeah. I think that was the last thing that really I can't remember what episode it was um I think it was it was one of the either the first or second episode where the guy is is um uh is called to that that sort of farm or vacant oh yeah area. and is and is uh it's before he's he's sort of uh assaulted so to speak that's the last thing that like leaps to mind I mean that's a good one that that was actually a pretty gnarly there's a lot of really gnarly moments in that in that in that show definitely I, I guess another one it's it was uh actually it was supposed to be a Tribeca with honeydew it's called my heart can't beat unless you tell it to oh yeah I saw this at one of the festivals recently yeah it, it's uh by Jonathan Cordes and um, mm -hmm. it, again, it was not heavy on the jump scare. It was definitely more of a slow burn, but there was, there was a sense of, um, of darkness that was so controlled and consistent throughout the film that made me feel creeped out. Uh, yeah. and I don't always get that, you know, it's, it was definitely, there's a really sort of considered tone and, and, uh, aesthetic that really enjoyed and admired awesome transitioning into honeydew can you tell our listeners what uh your movie's about for those that might not know <laughs> sure yeah of course it's, it's uh many might not know it's about a couple who um embarks on a camping trip it's a it's actually a, a guy named sam who's sort of following his girlfriend on this research trip. She's um, studying to get her PhD in botany. And, and they wind up setting up camp on a farmland that's owned by someone who isn't interested in them essentially camping there and lets it be known and sends them packing to uh, essentially try to start their car and it doesn't start. And there's a series of sort of familiar tropes that lead them to the house of this kindly retired farmer named Karen, uh, who takes them in very willingly and excitedly and promises to call them a jump and give them a and gives them uh, dinner and uh, introduces them to her sort of odd uh, nonverbal son and and all the while Sam is very 
willing and excited to sort of accept her hospitality and Riley is ever resistant. The night wears on, the sort of sense of warmth and hospitality that Karen puts forth at the outset starts to fade a bit and is replaced by a, what seems to be ulterior motives. Speaking <laughs> of Karen, what a fantastic performance by Barbara Kingsley. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my, my God. God. What was it like? Ca- like, what was that casting process like to get her and also Steven Spielberg's son in his <laughs> first role? Like, yeah, it was. Uh, so, yeah, we essentially I always mix up who came first. Uh, but I know that Barbara was a bit further down the line in terms of casting and who we sort of locked in before production Mm -hmm. we had been looking for someone before we saw her i think we'd been looking for karen for about a at least a month Mm -hmm. and been pretty you know actively casting every week uh, at least a couple times a week and i had actually gotten her contact through a friend of a friend someone actually that my mom knew from college she was oh wow pretty active with barbara in the theater scene in minneapolis at the guthrie and just just sort of saying her praises and did some research on her and she just has this really it has just just been a, a really prolific stage actress for the last like 40 45 yeah. years maybe more um, or had been at the time. And she came in and within the first few minutes, we just knew, you know, after she read the first couple lines of the sides, we all sort of knew, looked at each other and knew that, that this, was, this is our, this is our Karen. She just had a physicality and a malleability mm. that um, we hadn't seen in auditioning for Karen before her. And I hadn't really seen ever. And she was just able to find that character really quickly obviously after we cast her we had a bit more time to sort of dive into backstory and do some rehearsal though we actually didn't have that much time to rehearse with the whole cast before we went into production uh but she she was just yeah she was like a lightning rod and yeah and you know the her the what she can do with her face and her body Mm. and her limbs and timing it was just uh it was really exciting to to watch her get into that and with Sawyer that was another another one that I had connected to through a friend of a friend sort of I got on the phone with him and um, I'd seen a, a taping that he'd sent me or someone the friend had sent me and I really liked it and I can't even remember what it was for and I then I'd also seen he was in a, a short film called Afterlight it was like a Vimeo staff pick and I really sort of liked I just liked his look and I liked his cadence and and just sort of, he seemed like he could work really well for Sam. And at that point, he had mostly just been doing theater for a while. And he came in for an audition and he read with, we had just cast Malin as Riley and he read with her and they just had this instant chemistry. He brings such a like nervous energy to the film yeah. that his tics where his, his, his leg is like popping, jumping up and down from nervous energy. And he's like biting at his thumb. I do that all the time. And yeah. So I found myself like mimicking what what is going on on screen because (laughs) you talked about you you brought this up when you were talking about um, The Shining earlier, but that that the kind of dread that that opening scene infuses. This movie is full of that anxious energy that sort of, you know, something is coming. And so you're so anxious about it because you're just waiting to see when it's the trap is going to spring that I found myself literally biting at my nails through most of the the first act or so, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of me 
in my my nervous habits in Sam <laughs> and some of those so there's a number of things that he he does throughout the film especially the first half of the film that you know I sort of injected into his character and into his his physicality uh and he and he was really he sort of really got into that I mean even between takes and when we weren't even filming he was gnawing on his hand in some way and uh or jiggling <laughs> his leg and sort of it really dove into that that state of mind because he's not it, i don't think an overly i mean i know he's has his neuroses and we've talked a lot about that but i don't know that he's as physically nervous as i am uh, especially like when i'm you know trying to moderate something like food or sugar or whatever i sort of i was i resort to you know the the next available thing which is typically my own digits uh and uh <laughs> yep it, yeah you know i i think for sam that he's just in this in this uh point in his life where he is just incredibly uncomfortable and wants to feel good yeah uh, and every you know the person that he happens to be with at that time that he's on this trip with is very much interested in him staying healthy and and being active and and living a long life and he sort of sees that as a inhibiting mm. his level of pleasure and indulgence and, and Sawyer is so good at get sort of wrapping his arms around that and uh and also doing it in a really sort of funny but that subtle and nuanced way. So before we go into the movie that we're going to talk about, I just have, we have one more question. So what inspired this like oddly specific topic? Cause we, as you watch the film, like it gets pretty specific. So I'm curious about yeah. what the inspiration was behind the idea. I'd been working on a, a feature adaptation of a George Saunders short story called the 400 pound CEO for at the time, it was probably about a year and a half or so. Uh, and this is in 20 late 2017. And my friend Dan, Dan Kennedy, who shot the film as a co-producer, essentially texted me and asked me, do you want to shoot a horror feature next month? And <laughs> I had been sort of feeling really discouraged about about the fact that I hadn't really directed anything in over a year and feeling anxious about, you know, sort of getting the muscle working again. And it was taking a while for this other thing to get off the ground. And uh, I said, yeah, let's do it. And obviously one month became uh, something like nine or 10 months <laughs> and became a bit bigger scale than what we had initially envisioned and he sent me a, an outline at the beginnings of an outline which sort of centered around a couple on a camping trip and it was actually a couple who was being terrorized by a sort of woodland creature Ooh. and it was a bit started out as a bit more of a creature film mm. and then gradually we, we sort of pivoted a bit and it became something a little deeper a little more twisted and uh the the idea for sortico uh, being a sort of a through line came out of a, an article that someone sent me I, a friend who knew that i was writing a horror film and sort of saw some article i can't remember what magazine it was but they sent me uh an article about a tiny village in france in the 1950s called saint-pont-esprit which i always butcher that name and essentially large portion of the 
citizens in the town became infected by a fungus called ergot, which is a pretty, there was a, a more common, commonly found. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in the Middle Ages, but also in. Uh, St. Anthony's Fire, I think, right? St. Anthony's Fire, yeah. And and this was in the 1950s. And I was sort of, uh, the first time I read the article, I don't think I noticed this sort of when it actually happened. And then I looked back and saw that it wasn't necessarily that long ago. And there were hundreds of people developing gangrene and, and hallucinating and being committed to sanitariums. And, and I was just really struck by what a cool element that could be to add as a through line and, and, and use to connect them to the land and connect them to Karen. At the time, there wasn't a Karen yet, but connect them to the, someone who lived on the land and who was mm-hmm. sort of a seemingly, you know, salvation for them when they're, they have no resources and are looking for shelter. And I also injected some of the themes that I was working on in, on this other script, which deals a lot with body image and, and weight control and, and feeling like you're sort of, there's no room for you in the world you're in. And so that was sort of the, you know, the genesis of the Sortico element and and the religious element followed suit because there was a lot of any time that there's been a case of ergotism, which is ergot, ergot infection, especially in the Middle Ages or hundreds of years ago, there's been speculation that there is some sort of uh, it's sort of a punishment from God or that there's mm. It's a tribulation um, for sins. If there's a if there's a blight in any way, even if it's not ergot, there's always a you know certain people who think that there's a it's a some sort of reckoning. And uh, so yeah, that's that's a bit of the story of how that got infused. So we've talked about Honeydew. But, Devereaux, what movie are we, other movie are we discussing today? We're talking about Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Pulp Fiction, the Quentin Tarantino classic. Um, everyone who went to film school or studied <laughs> film has seen this movie and knows about it and probably had a poster of it on their wall, myself included. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, for those of you who haven't seen it, um, Vincent Vega, played by Don Travolta, and Joel Winnefeld, played by Samuel L. Jackson, are hitmen with a penchant for philosophical discussions. And this ulti... Well, that's funny. Their storyline is interwoven with those of their boss gangster, Marcellus Wallace, his actress wife, Mia, struggling boxer, Butch Coolidge, master fixer, Winston Wolfe, and a nervous pair of armed robbers, Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. (laughs) Yeah, that's... That's that's it. (laughs) That's it. That's the one. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a good uh, that's a good log one. I I feel like I've read parts of that before, and the philosophical the 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 penchant for philosophical conversations. I remember seeing and being like, I never like I never imagined if I were to write like a a log line or a summary of the film. I, it's <laughs> it's interesting that I feel like that is sort of was Tarantino's main focus was this sort of ongoing dialogue between them. Yeah. So. Vero, tell us about why you picked this movie and like when you first saw it and tell us your horror story about Pulp Fiction. Yeah, initially I was a little hesitant to pick this one because it's not, obviously it's not an all out horror film. It obviously plays with genre and it's also, you know, a lot of people have seen the film and have a relationship with it. And so I I didn't want to, I didn't want to be too on the nose with, you know, sort of uh recounting my experience watching it for the first time but you know i did have i think i was eight years old when i first saw it oh wow wow. (laughs) my cousin my cousin who was four years older than i was he was about 12 or 13 at the time 
was allowed to watch anything from the time he was born and was always playing graphic films, watching graphic films or had them on in the background. And I was always sort of eagerly, you know, sort of willing viewer. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I remember he, he was playing this for me. And I remember thinking, I think I started, the first time I watched it, I started it from the Royale dialogue in the car. You know what they call a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it the Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Vincent and Joel. And, and I remember it just feel just feeling like I must be watching this sort of out of context or that must be deep into the film at this point because it was sort of obviously started to jump around and was the most non-linear thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> obviously, I was only eight years old, so I hadn't seen much uh, non-linear story storytelling at that point. I think I started it there and then I think we got through this to the scene where ultimately they enter the apartment of, of these young guys and, and Samuel Jackson's character Joel starts to sort of go about intimidating them in this really sort of passive way. And I think then my cousin rewound it to the first scene with Pumpkin and Honey Bunny and and I just that first freeze frame of Amanda Plummer uh, mm. when they first of all when they first they're having this really casual conversation and they decide to to rob this diner that was just shocking because i'd also never seen anything where where a scene could take that drastic of a turn yes i'm glad you brought this up because i really wanted to, to talk about this scene in particular because where amanda Plummer's character is being very nice and she's having she's like you know talking oh i don't want to kill anyone and all that kind of stuff right. and then on like an instant she's like any of you fucking pricks move i'm going to execute every fucking last one of you like <sighs> it's such a it's such an escalation yeah but it's yeah. like the most beautiful line delivery when she jumps on the table and like oh. does that it's just like i that line remember it's just so good <laughs> yeah yeah in the way that she keeps obviously her dialogue sort of goes into voiceover for those last few syllables after the freeze frame and you just sort of see that 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 uh look on her face and yeah with the moments earlier she was like sort of uh smiling up at the waitress when she was pouring her coffee and and that was jarring that was just i mean there's <laughs> yeah. no no one's no one's been shot there's no real blood or or overt violence yet and then the and then the yeah the the opening <laughs> titles start with the miserable track and you know that's that surf rock i'd never heard anything like that before yep. obviously and it was just such a shock to the system uh and it goes into this that sort of spaghetti western titling and and i was just hooked and so disturbed already <laughs> and yeah and, and then we I, I was reintroduced to, to vincent vega and joel and and i got through that that scene where he recites the the bible verse and there it was such a, it starts everything starts so sort of benign and and not harmless but there's definitely a calm mm -hmm. yeah a lot of that first act for butch's butch's story and and then it just every it ultimately you're you're sort of expecting that something's amiss and then there's when the blood is shown the first time that there's violence there's something about those hot lights 
and cost their outfits and the you know the jerry curl and vincent vega's hair <laughs> the way that they're talking it was so i mean i hadn't seen films like that or films that any film that he like kiss me deadly or any aldrich film or any any of the stuff that he might have referenced mm-hmm. and sort of and sort of implanted into present time it was so it was also really jarring and so foreign and scary to me and just it made me for whatever reason feel really uneasy and yeah when he first shoots the shoots the guy after reciting reciting that verse it was it was just like that was sort of when i realized oh this will be like the first you know really violent sort of terrifying movie i see because anything before that might have been scary in its own right but it didn't really the 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 trigger wasn't pulled so to speak yeah and yeah and then and then i i think that just being introduced to characters who talked normal who spoke had these normal conversations throughout Mm -hmm. the throughout the film and had these really normal interactions and there was romance between uh me and vincent vega and there's a lighthearted sort of theme throughout the entire thing. And even to the end, when Pumpkin and Honey Bunny are talking to each other, all lovey-dovey. And even the scene with Butch, when Butch is introduced and he's having the conversation with um, with Marcellus. Up until that point, you know, it there does seem to be like there, there is access to safety, I feel like. Um, or at least I felt like at the time, even though there's this big shootout in the apartment <laughs> and then, uh, and then, you know, we don't see Butch kill the, the guy in the boxing ring. Right. It's just referenced. It's, yeah, it's just referenced through the, through the radio and the, in the cabbie. And, and that was all fairly benign for me. And I think I recognized Bruce Willis at, at the time as being in Die Hard and, <laughs> and, uh, and I hadn't seen Dyer, but I probably I think I'd recognize him from the poster or something. Well, he's kind of like the all American hero at this point, right? Like he right. spends the eighties with that sort of like diehard, you know, attitude. And so seeing yeah. him in this kind of role is is really interesting because I do think that Tarantino kind of leans into that persona, I think, and kind of almost yeah. in, in some ways kind of deconstructs it in a way. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's and yeah, because he goes he goes to the back to the his motel and he's all again he's very lovey-dovey and sweet with his his girlfriend and uh lemon pie i don't know if that's her character's name but that's what he calls her uh <laughs> every time i think of blueberry pan i think of pancakes i always think yeah. of her wanting to order blueberry pancakes <laughs> with maple syrup yeah, yeah, yeah. With, maple with maple syrup, syrup. yeah no, and it does seem like when he gets there, it's like, oh, okay, so this is that's as much of Butch's killer edge as we're going to see. It's mm-hmm. sort of referenced off screen, and um, and obviously that that's not the case, and it's all sort of spurred by the the watch drama. Okay, and, I want to talk uh, about this yeah. watch drama for a moment, though, <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> because I I completely forgot about the scene until I rewatched it, and <laughs> did you? <laughs> Oh, I did. Boy. I, okay, because um, I haven't seen I haven't seen this movie in probably I don't know a couple maybe two decades. Oh wow! Like it, it's been right. a, it's very I, I've only seen it once, and it's been such a really? very long time since I had seen it. And yeah. we'll, we'll we'll get to that to that watch like in a, in a minute. <laughs> but what surprised me about this is this idea that this watch is sort of like this heirloom. And it kind of reminds me of like this sort of idea of American exception, exceptionalism, where it's mm-hmm. like, this has been through so many different wars that America has been involved with. Of course, 
everyone but one person that has owned it has died up until this point. But the fact that this heirloom is then shoved up both Butch's father and this man who he's never met up his ass. And then it's just presented to him as sort of like, here you go. Here's your heirloom. Just blows my mind. <laughs> I just yeah, want yeah. to give also a shout out to Christopher Walken and this, his best comedic oh, performance as he talks the about the watch in his ass. And it was just like very <laughs> in his voice, like this watch, I put it in my ass. Like, it's just <laughs> your father. Be damned. Yeah. <laughs> I can't finish the rest of that sentence. But yeah. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass two years. Then after seven years, I was sent home to my family. And now, little man, I give the watch to you. Yeah, no, it's a quintessential walking <laughs> performance. And I'm convinced that the, I don't know what his first SNL performance was. I want to say it was in the 90s. Maybe it was. Maybe it was I mean, he's, he'd obviously been working for a while before then. But I feel like he became a bit of an SNL darling at some point after that maybe it was a bit later but uh i feel like that is like one of the those films where you're like this guy has to host snl and has it clearly has chops like he has this timing and this the intonation is just like and and obviously his face and his eyes and just the whole the whole uh presentation is just priceless oh it's like it's one of my favorite parts of the movie like it's so brief but just like i remember when i was a kid when i saw this for the first time because i was i was like between 10 or 13 and because i was like haha but i thought this part was so funny the way he was talking and i like he again he hands him this watch and i was like that is so gross in my yeah. like, little kid head i'm like hey just you for the rest of your life carry around this hunk of metal that was ups two people's butts it's just like it, right. it's so immature to but it's also really like the way it's presented is very funny it's really funny yeah but it's also and it's also like it's this little kid who's hearing this story <laughs> who like you can only you can only imagine like how much of that he's actually absorbing um and understand even understands like, like sitting in front of the tv and they're like butch there's someone here to see you and this like brittle morbid right. just like pops down and starts telling you these stories and you're like i just want to watch cartoons like who are you <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's such a great i mean it's such a good uh sort of cut to flashback moment yes you know because there's so much going on and it's so high stakes and it, it's at that point actually i mean he's he's essentially on the run but he gets pretty he's sort of put at ease the minute he walks into the room and his girlfriend is lying on the bed and and they have a really you know sort of relaxed back and forth and they both shower and 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 then you that the moment he realizes the watch isn't there everything starts up again and you it's the last thing that you think would activate right. the next beat yeah. you know of, of all the things that are happening it ha it's the watch that that's made everything all the more dangerous and more dire um and then we see that flashback and it completely takes us out of the moment but it does it in such an effective and funny way and that's what something that I recently thought about with Pulp Fiction is it like it feels like such small things trigger these really important moments and I feel like Tarantino is really good at kind of putting this puzzle together in yeah. a really fascinating way and I saw this when I was 10 to 13 
like between those ages is my dad's yeah. favorite movie. He was like, you got to watch it. I did, <laughs> did not understand most of it. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. <laughs> like I was like, I have literally no idea what's happening with the gym scene and my dad yeah, wouldn't yeah. Oh, explain yeah. it well, to yeah. me, which, yeah, but I was really, well, really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was really confused about the nonlinear structure. Cause like you said, yeah. Devro, I had, I was still learning about movies and there's that point in the middle where Vincent is shot and then he wasn't the rest of the movie. And I was so right. confused and I was just wanted to ask, like, what did you both think of this nonlinear structure? And why do you think Tarantino opted for that with this film? I certainly, when I, I had the exact same reaction when I first saw it, like I said, like I, I, I did start it. I remember starting it a little further in than that first diner scene. Yeah. But after then I went, we went back and started from the beginning. It still didn't make sense to me. <laughs> Right. <laughs> because uh, outside of the fact that there are these sort of fade outs and fade ins to sort of indicate a change in space and time, I was I was completely lost and I couldn't figure out why they were the next scene were with Butch after their that shootout in the apartment and why they're wearing the T shirt and shorts and, and then yeah, he's <laughs> Vincent Vegas killed after the toaster. And then it, the fact that the toaster I actually remember talking to my psychiatrist at the time. I I, uh, I had a, a therapist. My pa- this is getting way too intricate, but my parents had split up, and so I they they uh, put me in therapy. And uh, and I remember talking to her about having watched it. Uh, I don't know. It just maybe because it sort of I was just so confused by it. <laughs> and she said, uh, and I remember mentioning that scene where the toaster goes off and he kills Vincent Vega. And then Vincent Vega is all of a sudden still alive and her trying to break down why I thought that happened. And I had no answer. I mean, I couldn't, what could I say that he can't, he'd come back to life somehow. Or there was some sort of mad. I knew that there was something had, you know, maybe it had to do with the fact of with whatever was in the, the suitcase. And so that definitely always stuck with me and, and contributed all the more to just sort of uh, feeling uneasy about what I was watching and not being able to sort of fit myself into it in a way that when, when you're that age or when you're 10 or you're 11, you know, you're, your whole, the whole reason you're watching a movie is to follow a story yeah. and, and essentially and with the hopes that it, that it ends in a happy ending, which ultimately it kind of does. So you know that that Vincent Vega has been killed by the end. And I, I watched an interview with him, with Tarantino. So like an, like an interview from the 90s at some time after it had been released or there's one can. And he said, oh, I'm trying to remember what he said specifically. I mean, he talked about essentially that he thought the story worked better out of time mm. and that the characters mm. and their journey had more of an effect out of time. And the people that they interacted with on their journey made more sense in the places that they were introduced. Mm. And I completely agree with that. Now, I mean, that may, would have made no sense to me uh, when I was a kid, but I, I, I definitely heard that and thought, well, yeah, there's just, it's just such a fresh way to sort of follow someone and their mood because their mood is, in some ways, even though you know it's out of time, even though you know it's nonlinear, you're still following their this their sort of experience and their mood in a linear way. Inevitably, you know, you're still you're still seeing when you know after Travolta, after uh, Vincent Vega is killed, and then we and then he the wolf scene follows afterwards. Boys, get to work. Please would be nice. Come again? I said a please would be nice. Get it straight, Buster. I'm not here to say please. I'm here to tell you what to do. 
And if self-preservation is an instinct you possess, you better fucking do it and do it quick. I'm here to help. If my help's not appreciated, lots of luck, gentlemen. You're still experiencing his sort of world in your own linear way. Uh, and it makes sense. Yeah. And I know that when I saw the interview with Tarantino, he referenced certain other films that I can't I can't name them off the top of my head that that did employ nonlinear storytelling. And I think Hitchcock might have been in there a bit and uh, in Aldridge. Well, he was sort of the, the one to to kind of bring it to the, the more 1990s modern uh, mainstream mm-hmm. America, because like. Uh, I remember particularly in college when I was reading a lot of, I was an English major and so I was reading a lot of texts from places outside of the United States. And a, there's a lot of, especially over in, in, in Asia, there's a lot of nonlinear storytelling, but it's not something that's really caught on here in the States a whole lot. But then when no. he, so when he brings this, when I was, when I saw this for the first time, this was the first time I'd ever experienced a story told out of order. And it also mm. broke my mind as a, I was like, I think I was 18 when I saw it for the first time. Yeah. And it, it broke my mind too, because I was like, wait, is he, how is he still alive? Cause I, for some reason I was not <laughs> grasping initially that it was told out of, out of order. And so, right. so the fact that Tarantino is able to bring this to a, a modern American audience and then has created like a legacy of films since then that have, played with time a lot more, I, I think is really interesting. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I completely agree. And yeah, I mean, I, I can say, again, it's it's easy to say that, yeah, from my perspective, he was the first, at least for me, that, that introduced that way of telling a story through cinema because it's my first experience with it. It's it is interesting that it hasn't quite caught on, or it's it does. I mean, it, it does still happen. I mean, I think I'm trying to think of another American film. There's there's plenty. I guess Memento's one. Have you seen Go? The, movie, again, Go. Sorry, the movie Go from 1999. Yes, but I haven't seen with uh, yeah Katie Holmes and um, Mark Wahlberg. Is Katie Holmes in that? No, Katie Mark Holmes Wahlberg is in it. And, uh, Timothy yeah. Oliphant is in it. Timothy Oliphant, right? Yeah, I haven't seen that since I was a kid too. Actually, that was, I think the last time I saw it was a blockbuster round. But yeah, or Amores Peros is, Me- is Mexican, but that was probably the second one that I'd seen that was that was told a bit out of order or in fragments. But I, but yeah, no, it's it's. I mean, I still attribute, and again, going back to the the gimp scene. Okay, yes, let's talk about yeah, the gimp scene. Let's talk yeah. about that. <laughs> obviously, yeah, that's uh, that's something. I remember part of the reason that that was so terrifying. Not the main reason, obviously, but part of it was that Marcellus is putting. A situation where he has no power. He's mm-hmm. been completely reduced to essentially the victim uh, and and someone who's who's stripped of all of their uh, all of their powers and all of their intimidating qualities. And he start and we start out with him being you know the guy who's essentially driving this this bus, driving us through this this narrative. To see someone like that who's got such force be put in that situation and then be introduced to that type of violence when you're a mm-hmm. kid. And yeah. then, you know, Zed takes him in the room. And I, when I first saw it, I actually didn't know what he was doing. And I don't think, I can't remember if my cousin was in the room when I saw that scene, but I know that I, I remember watching it and knowing like, I, I thought he was hitting him, you know, it was some sort of blunt force abuse, but right. I knew that the fact that he closed the door meant something there was something deeper and more twisted going on and and i the, i remember the the visual that i remember the most being the most terrifying for me was the ball gags and it was the first mm. time i'd see these big bright red ball gags and these the sweat 
and the sort of the harsh lighting, I just remember that being so terrifying. And I knew like, I knew that those, those meant something. Like I knew that there was, I don't know that I knew that it was sexual, but I knew that like, you know, it was, they weren't like rags or like, you know, socks or bandanas. Like there right. was something perverse about them. And I remember that striking me more than the sort of off screen stuff that was going on. But yeah, that for me, I remember. And then I think that I, my dad had a roommate he was living with who <laughs> explained it to me. Oh, jeez! Uh, graciously oh, explained it. He was like, how about that rape scene? <laughs> And I said, wow. what rape scene? And he said, well, that's what's happening. I said, I, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I said, I think he was just like hitting him really hard. And he, and he, uh, he said, no, I'm saying, I think it, while he was explaining it, he realized, oh shit, I shouldn't be having this conversation with a, that probably was nine by that time. Oh no, <laughs> yeah. no. So yeah, that's my, that was my first, my first oh, memory geez. of sort of absorbing that scene. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I was I was 18 when I when I saw this film and I was deeply closeted at the time and I was watching this in my female friend's basement and it was just the two of us and I remember oh, picking boy. this I remember picking this movie because like um, I'd heard, you know, oh, it's 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 hyper violent and I was thinking it was going to be this exciting, you know, shoot 'em up type movie. Mm. And I remember sitting down and watching this and being like, this movie is, I, I, I was probably an insufferable teenager, but I remember thinking this movie was really boring uh, because it's just like a lot of conversations. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. And I, I, so I remember, I remember thinking, gosh, these people just like to talk and all they do is talk. And then there's all of a sudden this like punctuation of violence, like Marvin getting his face blown off or, or right. Vincent getting mowed down when the pop tarts pop up. Yeah. So I, I remember thinking that, and then I remember getting to the gimp scene and again, I was, I was deep closeted and I, yet I see this very sexual and this very, um, homosexual sexual imagery of this man that has been kept in this cage in like this right. full on leather suit and he's let out and then he's hanging from the ceiling. And then the, the, the sexual assault happens in the room. And I remember at that time I was very, I, I knew that I was gay, but like I was pushing back on it so hard that anytime there was anything that was remotely gay that was on on screen i remember pushing back very hard on it because i didn't want them to think that i was and so seeing this scene and being mm. forced to watch it where it's just me and this girl who i looking back on it she was deeply like in love with me but like i didn't mm. i didn't know it at the time and so it was like this this really awkward it was so awkward for me and i think that might be one of the reasons why i've never revisited this movie since i was like oh, wow. 18 years old because it was this scene imparted so much like nervous uncomfortable energy in me because like I knew that there was something very sexual happening, but I didn't quite understand right. what it was and how it would have right. related to me. And so that might be looking, thinking back on it now and talking about it, why I never watched this film until oh, last that... night. Like literally last night was probably the first time since I was 18. So Holy shit. Yeah, that's 20, so that's a... 22 years. <laughs> That's oh crazy. God. Yeah, that I mean, that definitely makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially, yeah, they're introducing it. I mean, it's being introduced essentially as in a violent way and in a way that's very sort of, uh, you know, debauched and, and wrong. Uh, and it's it makes sense that if you're not at a point where you're open about that, that when you're presented with with it, 
sort of being, you know, when it's introduced in a very violent and terrifying way and so vividly. Yeah. Well, I think this is honestly my first my first experience with like uh, gay sex on on screen. And this is what is being introduced to me. Yeah, so, me, me too. Probably the same, same, same as me. And that, that's sad. <laughs> well, that's sad. But it's like, <laughs> it's, it, right. it, well, and it's like, this is like, I think this is a really big moment of gay sex on screen. Like, it's a popular, like, Pulp Fiction is so popular and it's villainizing queer sexuality. And it's, but it's like taking right. kink and, rape and like putting them all in one place and it just seems right, to be right, like right. sensationalizing gay identity in a way that is very harmful but another sure. like on the other hand i think this is again this scene is pro is like my dad was laughing through it which might have been because he was nervous and also he's kind of an asshole but um <laughs> <laughs> just telling it how it is um yeah. i feel like people often laugh at this scene because of the gimp and people are so uncomfortable and right. yeah this is a moment of spectacle but i also think this is a very rare like very rare moment of watching a man be sexually assaulted mm. and yeah. i feel like it's an important conversation to have because it's not had very often and you know there is the he gets revenge so there's this interesting like rape revengey angle that could be seen here but i don't think that's necessarily talked about it's more just like he this big black guy was assaulted by like a gross white dude and it becomes Skinny like guy, this yeah. yeah so i don't know i think there's something interesting white security there. guard yeah so yeah. there's something interesting yeah. there about that definitely yeah no it's representation it's, there's plenty of yeah, there's plenty of heterosexual <laughs> heterosexual rape before and since, and even now, yeah, you don't see a lot of that. And it it was, I mean, it's, as an eight year old, it's confusing. Yeah, partly because oh, yes. I mean, at the time, obviously, I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I knew something. I, especially when the gimp comes out, you know, there was an introduction for me, you know, to gay or straight to any sort of um, sexual. It's like deviancy, like, deviancy, like right, almost right. deviant. That's the yeah, what I was looking for. Yeah, and yeah, it's a good point you make. Like, where you're, they are sort of combining uh, kink and and rape in a way that I think over the last few decades we've maybe been able to separate those a bit more and a bit more effect and use them more separately uh, and use use kink in comedy, but also in in a serious way and. And not uh, have it be as stigmatizing, but also something that I don't. I feel like most people, when they talk about Pulp Fiction, maybe because it's hard to do in a censored way, they don't talk about that scene. Even though it was, I mean, a lot of people, if you're having a conversation with your friends, you do. But you know, typically when there's a ever there's a reunion or some sort of like, you know, hearkening back to it as a classic film that's not uh touched upon as much well it's such a weird i mean i guess in a movie of 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 like weird non sequiturs it's such a, a bizarre moment because i i mean tarantino is often has described it also as being like the, the film goes from being um at this point from being like a body and soul type neo-noir boxer movie to mm. where he's like basically walking onto the set of an urban deliverance in this scene right, and it's right. only because mm -hmm. of like them taking the wrong turn like <clears throat> it's only because we've talked about you we brought this up already a couple times where it's like a small insignificant moment causes um a change in the plot and this is another one where they just picked the wrong pawn shop to go into like right. if, if he had just stopped a, a, a 
building before or gone to the next door, it would have turned out so much different. But it's because he just happened to stumble into this Confederacy flag hillbilly-ish pawn shop that shit right. goes south again. Yeah, yeah. And in that way, he's so, I mean, he's, this is true of all of his films, but he's very good at sort of following his pen without shame or like preconceived structural direction. You know, yeah. like he doesn't mm-hmm. think, oh, will this not make sense or will this sort of throw people off? And that's why he's so, such a great storyteller and why his films are so beloved is because they constantly surprise you and go and he's the sort of the master of tangents you know he's like he can bring you somewhere and then that's completely you know seemingly unrelated and then take you right back to the where you left off and and continue to make it really interesting and um unpredictable uh, so speaking of kind of interesting and unpredictable what do you guys think is in the suitcase i mean i know obviously <laughs> it's mcguffin and tarantino says it's whatever the audience wants it to be but right right have you guys ever thought about what could be in there? I mean, I I was told I don't I don't know that I've thought about it beyond what I was told when I was younger, which is that it's Marcellus's soul that he's delivering to the devil. Yeah, and that's and ever since then I've sort of accepted that or some version of that. I've heard a couple different versions of it, but that that was in a way what had happened and that for whatever reason i remember being told or thinking that the bandit on the back of his neck was somehow how they extracted his soul from him yeah i I mean what about you mary beth yeah i i've also heard lots of stuff about that about you know diamonds from reservoir dogs like all this stuff but i i also think i also watched like watched it as thinking it's his soul for similar reasons that you said devro but also in my mind, when they open it in this gold shimmer, like this otherworldly gold, they, like light takes over Tim Roth's face and the awe on his face. <laughs> open it. Wait, what is it? What is it? Is that what I think it is? Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe I don't know in my mind money or diamonds wouldn't be that entrancing I feel like there's something else in there that's more yeah it's gorgeous and he doesn't try to take it out of there you know what I mean like it just it's something that transcends material stuff right right yeah so yeah Terry what about you what do you think yeah I'm that's that's I, that's my my thought, and the reason why I, I was thinking about that a whole lot more on this on this rewatch is this kind of segues into it for me. Who you guys think the protagonist is, if there is one in this film? Because mm-hmm. I think the reason why the film is structured the way it is, I think it's it's Jules because yeah. he's mm-hmm. the one that gets like the sort of character progression where he starts off as this killer. He starts to question himself. He has the moment of, of divine intervention. He believes where, whether, whether it is or not, um, because I, at the bullet holes, I believe are on the wall before he gets yeah, shot. Yeah. So like, there's that kind of question of, is this, is this really divine intervention or not? It doesn't really matter. That's a moot point because to him it is. And it's a moment where he like changes his thought. And I think that, it's sort of him escaping this, the devil for, for lack of a better word. And that's yeah. sort of mm-hmm. epitomized in this 666 suitcase that might be holding the soul of the person that's kind of held him 
simultaneously in his like orbit. And it's because at the very end of the movie that he's able to exit and leave, we know, we know that Vincent's going to die because the story's told out of order. So we know that Vincent is going to his death and Jules is not because otherwise he would have been there in that same apartment getting shot at by, by Butch. So we know he escapes. Whereas we know that Vincent doubles down and goes back to this, this life of, of evil. And that's why he ends up dying. And so it it gives it a happy ending because you see Jules leaving. And so for me, it's all kind of tied together of what's why of what's in the suitcase, the structure, and also the way the film ends. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely felt, yeah, I've always felt like it was Jules and and even, I mean, it, obviously he's the most, I don't know that he's the most, maybe he's the most outspoken. Um, I say the most outspoken maybe because he's the loudest uh, and projects the most. And John and Vincent Vega sort of presents this very laid back counter character to him. And obviously Butch is pretty low key. But yeah, I've always, I've always felt that. And I don't know if it's just because of that final, that last diner scene. But even if he wasn't this very sort of in control, brash, outspoken, fearless, likable, funny guy and wise guy. I think if you have, if you end with a scene like that, and he's clearly at the very least the protagonist of that scene, Mm -hmm. it's impossible to sort of not feel like it was his story all along. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, yeah, you obviously, it's it's hard because you do, Vincent Vega does get killed halfway in and and then once he when he is killed he seems so secondary because we're in butch's world at that point it happens so quickly you almost miss it you know what i mean like you're like who because i remember when i first watched it i was like wait who was that and it does like it seems so it's so jarring because it's you know we've been following him for a while then all of a sudden just like on the toilet bye yeah Yeah, yeah. like yeah he needs to not go to the bathroom because like (laughs) I mean, he Bye. goes. He goes to the bathroom uh, when Mia when uh, Mia overdoses. Yeah. He goes to the bathroom and comes out and gets shot. He goes to the bathroom in the final scene when you know Honey Bunny and and uh, Pumpkin are taking over the the restaurant. Like, dude needs to maybe not be in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, he needs to hold. <laughs> Reading it. his uh, his his book. Uh, <laughs> His book, Modesty yeah, Bla- Blase, I think is the yeah, name. Yeah, it was some pulp. Oh, I pulp, love. Uh, it was pulp fiction, I think, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I do have to add a funny, just like a very funny, short anecdote. So the scene where they're dancing at the diner, which is <laughs> the best. Mm-hmm. Um, my fiance and I are joking about having that be our first dance at our wedding instead oh, of doing like a slow dance. We're just gonna do the dance from Pulp Fiction. I think that for like. That's perfect. Five straight yeah. minutes. I love that. That's yeah. excellent. I mean, talk about iconic <laughs> moments, though. Like this, this movie has them, and that's even if oh, you've never seen the God. movie. Like I remember my parents doing like that that the fingers over the eye, you know, move it. Right, that right. Vincent does. Like even if you've not seen that movie, you know the that dance scene. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's. Uh, I, I definitely that that whole that whole diner sequence where they're. They're ordering the. Um, she doesn't order the Amos and Andy. What's the other? What's the uh, Martin and Lewis milkshake? Oh, yeah, and, Martin Lewis and uh, <laughs> the five dollar milkshake. Five, five, five dollar milkshake. <laughs> God, and, yeah, he just and a young Steve Buscemi taking the <laughs> order. Oh, yeah, Holly, yeah. <laughs> buddy yeah. Holly. The, but and I remember hearing. I, did, I will say that's one other thing that stands out to me is when he takes the orders and he says, "How do you want that cooked? Run to a crisp or bloody as hell." I remember thinking how crude that was for a waiter to, to ask when I was a kid. 
for, for a waiter to ask that about how you want your steak and how that sort of, even though there was fairly lighthearted little sequence uh, when he said that, I was just, I just, it sort of brought the violence back to the moment for me. But yeah, that, then they, that dance scene is just like, can't really think of a more iconic dance scene. So um, on that note, do we want to wrap up and give us a rating out of five? Or is there any other points that we want to touch on? There's so much to talk about in this movie. Know, it's, it's almost overwhelming. It's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Terry, um, how many Royales with cheese out of five do you give Pulp Fiction? Oh, man. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, in terms of like iconic films and how important it is to American cinema, I mean, I feel like I have to give it at least a, at least four and a half or else a cheese. I'll get I'll give the half to poor Jules, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> this isn't my favorite of Quentin Tarantino's films. And it might be because of the time that I saw it in and, and the sort of like history that's hung over it. But like, it's not the one that I'm going to probably ever you know, just bring out and watch, even though I know that for a lot of people, it's like the big Quentin Tarantino film. I'm more of a Kill Bill fan myself, volume <laughs> one in particular. Yeah, for sure. I understand. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think in terms of its importance in American cinema, its importance to set his career, and it's, it's sort of like legacy leading from there. I do think, for me, I probably would give it four and a half Royals with Cheese. What about you, Mary Beth? I'm going to give it a full five Royals okay. with Cheese. You know, I have a love-hate relationship with Quentin Tarantino, but like, you know, as is stereotypical of a lot of film people, he was one of the first like big directors I got into. I loved mm-hmm. Glorious Bastards. I loved Pulp Fiction. And so I, you know, I have a lot of love for this movie and how it introduced me to a lot of like cinematic techniques. I know that Quentin Tarantino as a white guy saying the N-word quite a bit mm. is pretty gross and not my favorite. Mm-hmm. But, you know, acknowledging some of those problems, I still love this movie for what it is and how beautiful it is. And its whole package is just absolutely stunning. So that's what I think. All right. Devro, yeah. you have the final word. How many Royals of Cheese do you give Pulp Fiction? Yeah, well, I don't know if this is a lot. I was going to give it 4.75 Royals <laughs> yeah, of Cheese right. uh, for that very reason, right. for the... I think a lot of people didn't fully register, especially younger people, the uh, the N-word use by white people, especially Quentin Tarantino's, the scene where he really just goes for it. Oh, I know. And when it when it came out and it just it really does hit now. It's just like you can't. Yeah not flinch and that's definitely uh something that that i i think i could live without but uh but yeah that yeah. that's i think would be the the only real percentage that yeah. i would i would cut from from my my score and tarantino really hasn't learned that much from, it, right? from that <laughs> like he continues to do that like i think in django unchained yeah django unchained <laughs> well yeah geez yeah <laughs> I mean, I think I might, my guess is, I mean, I guess he's only, he's meant to only have one more film in him, but my guess is he'd probably hold off for the final film on using as many, as many derogatory, you know, racial epithets. I mean, yeah, it's, it's funny how, how it really were, but not almost like what, 20, was it 25 years ago, 27 years ago? Yeah, it came out in 94, I believe. Right. So yeah, it's. 20 i was 93 i'm so bad at math 20, i am too That's 20 26 26 or 27 yeah the, that how there hasn't been much of a reduction in in that type of dialogue but but yeah i mean it is for me it was the first really uh sort of smart and exciting mm. you know experience in cinema that i 
ever had. And it introduced me, like you said, it introduced me to a lot of uh, what you can do with film and where you can take your characters and how you can sort of how uh how flexible film can be even though there is sort of a unlike a lot of other art forms there is some rigidity with time and and pacing and uh you know you have to capture people's attention over the span of two to three hours uh but it it sort of was the first thing where i, I realized like you can really sort of go crazy yeah yeah awesome well Thank you so much, Devo, for joining us to talk about Pulp Fiction. Where can our listeners find you and what do you have that you'd like to share? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter uh, as at Blindspot Stud. <laughs> and uh, you can uh, you can watch Honeydew starting tomorrow in the U.S. on, on VOD pretty much just about anywhere you can rent, rent films online. Uh, that includes iTunes, Amazon, Vudu. Uh, most cable on demand providers and that's yeah april 13th and it's been been available in the uk for a couple weeks now watch it it's really cool and weird and it's like texas chainsaw massacre but for 2021 in a cool way so yeah (laughs) watch it (laughs) good pitch yeah Um, i like it (laughs) (laughs) so listeners you've heard from us we want to hear from you what is your experience with Pulp Fiction? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast at Scarred Podcast. And don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. <laughs>